Are we on? No. Can you get my microphone input? KWAD Radio, and this is Patty Holstrand live. We're talking from Mama Java's, which is an Indian school road in 36th Street. And we're on live with a couple of uh, couple guys here that I have next to me. And we're having a little bit of technical difficulties as with uh, everything. With, with the, I'm already on. With the uh, technology, though, we sometimes have a problem with it. So we're going to put you on hold for a couple minutes and see if we can re- resolve the other microphones so we can tap into them as well. So hang on. Are you hearing your... <laughs> this is Patty Holstrand, and we're on live again on KWAD Radio. And this is where at Mama Java's, which is a great little coffee house on 36th Street and Indian School Road in Phoenix, Arizona. And we're on live here with a couple guys, a couple of others uh, that I know personally. And they're a lot of fun. So we thought we'd do a, a fiction show based on. Oh, we'll talk about 2012. We'll talk about, you know, how we come up with our story ideas, and we'll grab awesome, we'll have some great fun coming up with some new ideas. I have a couple of prompts for this that they know about, so we'll have to see how our our magic makers work out here. So I'd like to introduce Donald Jocks, and he lives here, right right here in Scottsdale, Arizona. Hey, Hi, everybody. Introduce yourself. Tell us a little bit about you. I've been writing for years and years and years and years. I've been published for three years now, two years. Three years. Three years, I can't remember. <laughs> and got now three, four books, one, two, three, three books and a pamphlet under my belt, fourth book on its way, and two more fiction works on the way. I am a handyman by day and a weirdo by night. Well, that says it all. Uh, our other guest comes all the way from Philadelphia, and he's I've been an author of ours for several years now, and he's got lots of books, so we'll let him talk about it. Hey, Mike, say hi. Hi, everyone. Thank you for 
Grazio. It's going to be here in Phoenix in the warm weather out of the cold confines of Philadelphia. Uh, currently, uh, I have a new book coming out, uh, Galaxy of the Damned, uh, from Helm Publishing, and that would be the fourth and final book in my Space Frontier series. I also have the Fractured Time Trilogy, and a horror, adult horror-themed uh, novel na- uh, called Night Creeps. Uh, that's, and those books are with AZ Publishing. Uh, you know, I've been writing since about 2000, you know, the turn, the turn of the century there. And uh, you know, my big goal is to see the books become movies. Now, after doing the books for a while, you know, I've, I've branched off into the screenwriting world, and you know, it seems like it's one of those things. It's a fickle business, but a couple of them are very close, and we'll see what happens with time. And that's definitely true. Uh, we I had somebody on my blog last night that we were going back and forth about screenwriting. And uh, we also have somebody here in town who's looking to do a screenwriting play, so we'll have to talk to him as well. And one of the questions I asked was, uh, you know, one that you asked me about or we talk about, how in the world do you get your, your, you know, your book that you've already adapted to screenplay, how do you get it in front of the money makers or the money vendors, so to speak, in, in Hollywood? And he said pretty much what you were doing uh, was right, and that is uh, because the business is, is so full of, and it's so full of ideas and so many people out there uh, who are trying to tote their wares, so to speak, they uh, rely heavily on agents. And he said, you know, he, he's even heavily on agents, and he has agents actually look at look at stories and, and consider whether or not they're going to be, you know, make it made into a good TV series or made into uh, a you know, a movie or a, as we put it, movie of the week, which I thought was kind of funny considering that movie of the week is something that you and I grew up with. And uh, I don't think they call it that anymore. So, of course, it goes to show you how Guy uh, Magar, he, that, that's his age showing there. <laughs> so, uh, movie of the week. So, uh, I was also saying this week that, that some of the things that we have experienced in television and movies uh, really resonate uh, make us who we are as writers later. Um, for instance, I, I get into a lot of sword play, and we just lost one of our, our all-time favorite swordsmen and, and one of our magic makers in, in Hollywood who's worked uh, from Star Wars to Highlander to you name it. All the great sword fights that I have enjoyed over the years has been actually choreographed by this man named Bob Anderson. And so we want to say a moment here and say we're really sad that he see him go and he's 89 years old, so or 89 years young because he's still he's still been working. Uh, apparently he just was working on The Hobbit, so that was just not even out yet. So this goes to show this 89 year old man who's still out there being a squash booker. So uh, what in your past has really resonated and caused you to write the way what you write? Uh, I just one of the big things are probably as a child, some of the shows that I used to watch, uh, some of the writers that even today I still respect. Uh, I'd say probably the core of a lot of my writing. I used to love the cartoon show Johnny Quest, and I, a lot yeah, of my I love Johnny Quest too, yeah. yeah. So a lot of my stories, if you can imagine Johnny Quest when he got eight, turned about eighteen, nineteen years old, the kind of trouble he would get in then, <laughs> and that kind of fueled a little bit. Uh, well, Johnny Quest never got into trouble. He just was always saving the world. There's a difference. Yeah. But you could get into trouble and then get out of it and save the world. Well, yeah. <laughs> that's the key, how you can get into trouble and look like a hero. <laughs> that's true. And, you know, kind of weird thing is that I wasn't Johnny that I liked so much. That's true. It was the father. Uh, and and I just, just loved his best friend. 
Yeah, you had to push that 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 mutt that had the little that lady get I think you call them bandit because they had that little uh, that looked like yeah. a mask on them. Yeah. She loved that little dog. Well, see, it was never John that got into trouble. It was always bandit. Bandit. I always said it was a troublemaker, apparently. Well, Bandit just sniffed out all the stuff, and Johnny and Haji just had to follow. I mean, it's just the way it worked. But in real life, it was Johnny and Haji that got into trouble, but they blamed the dog, and that's what yeah, made it so to the screen. Well, only when it turned out bad. True. Because, now, see, if Race was going to come and save them, and everything works out to good, and it was some weird guy trying to take over the world, and they got the bad guy, and everything's good... And then Johnny's dad really didn't care a whole lot. He might get a little slap on the pinky, but who cares? Well, I, think, I, research I, think, the, I think the father understood uh, the boy. The, you know, and, of course, the adventure. Is it, the, it was the adventure I loved so much. You know, we had different uh, countries that we never saw, so we enjoyed, you know, India. Obviously, you know, Haji, being from, from the Persian area, was very fascinating to me. And of course, uh, again, another something that resonated. I think, uh, what was it? Uh, we had the uh, HR Puffin stuff and a lot of weird shows that, that you know, had something to do with somebody obviously saving someone. But it had fantasy elements and it had adventure and it had science fiction. Well, so, not only that, but, but it, when, you, when you really take a hard look on a quest, you see a, a show, albeit animated, it was a show that integrated everything the kids loved. You had Haji's magic. You had Johnny's father's science. You had Race Bannon's uh, sci-tech spy thriller stuff. You had um, you had the adventure of always getting caught in something strange and wonderful. I'm sure you can think of a few things, Michael. Yeah, I remember sometimes creatures that got involved, uh, the, sometimes using the technologies and the creature. There were just so many different things, the high-tech of planes. It, it, was just, it took us into the future, you know, you know, kind of the imagination a little bit, what might be. And interestingly enough, we see parallels in other TV shows that borrowed from Johnny Quest or whatever. Do you remember the episode where the electric monster showed up in the, in the, in the forest and they really struggled to to battle with it and get it taken <laughs> care of. Sounds like your story night, And then in Lost in Space, they had a similar creature show up. And also, <laughs> Twilight Zone also did a, uh, an episode where some people landed on landed somewhere, and out outside the perimeter of the rocket ship was this electrical beast that they couldn't see, couldn't hear, and it was sucking the life out of everybody. And they found a similar solution, interestingly enough to battle this creature and subdue it so that they could then leave and go home. And that's that's one of the wonderful things that I think we see in writing movies and everything is this this cross pollination that occurs. Cross pollination, and that's something that happens a lot. Yeah, the nice thing too though, when you put a little bit of fantasy in the science fiction, fantasy takes away all the rules. You can do things. You can bend the rules. Right, right. I mean, you science can... fiction. You're, you're you were forced into a box, and the family you just you just uh, you know wish it away. Yeah, <laughs> kind of like Haji noticing a scorpion on the floor. So what's he do? He levitates, <laughs> folds right across. Yeah. And Johnny is sitting there on the bed, wondering, Haji, <laughs> what's that gonna do? Band is yeah. just over there playing with it. <laughs> yeah, but it's, it's nice because the rules. The rules that bind science fiction are usually the rules that we know today. 
Uh, there's a lot of, of new laws out there that we haven't discovered. Obviously, things relative to time and space travel. But but the th- nice thing with fantasy is it lets you imagine beyond beyond the box of laws that we have now. And the interesting thing that I've noticed recently is, is we've been handed a whole new set of of um, frameworks that we can now work in that let us do some really cool stuff. For example, we we now have multiverse instead of the universe before. Before the universe, it was the the galaxy, and before the galaxy, it was the solar system. Well, as our understanding has grown and developed, we now have this thing that in the multiverse, we can go to whole new universes where the laws of physics are different. Star Trek Voyager did that with the uh, the eight, three, four, seven something species that came from an aquatic type universe that had they they literally traveled through fluid in their space. Um, and and we see some of the uh, the book series talk about people who are transported to another universe, and in that universe, stuff behaves differently. I mean, the simplest example is John Carter going to Mars, which is timely because we have a new movie coming out soon. And so with John Carter going to Mars, and on Barsoom, the gravity is one-third that of Earth, so he has great strength, he has great leaping capabilities, and just that gives us so much to work with. Where before, we saw the Tolkien-esque fantasy begins to fade as science takes over. Um, we see the potential of magic diminish because now science is here. But many authors have now gotten around that, like you say, Michael, where they have written a little bit of fantasy in there that then opens the door to magic to return to that story, to that universe. And that's interesting because we're talking about uh, you know mixing, uh, mixing genres. That's become a really top thing. And I don't sure. I mean, I think some of the big publishers are starting to realize this. But uh, it's been basically a cornerstone of the small publishers now, you know, for the last you know ten twenty years because uh, the big publishers haven't been filling that niche. And these are things people want to read is cross genre stories. I think that's what we have a lot. Of. Yeah, I like to. You know, it's funny. There's the science fiction and horror. It's very difficult to define the line between the two. Because um, a lot of times the fear of the unknown in science fiction becomes horror. Then sometimes, you know, meeting the unknown can be a horror as well. Good. And that's that's the key is that we can do a lot of different, and of course, romance. Uh, they, and that's all over the map. And one thing that we all see in the hero's journey, which if you look at most sci-fi, it's it's you've got this central character who is literally in some way, shape, or form going on the hero's quest. He's got a problem to solve. He's got to move himself through society in a way that gets to whatever problem he's trying to solve, whether it be a personal growth or whether it be, save the universe from the Tartars for all, all we know. Um, and that's what makes, I think, science fiction and fantasy I'm a lot more interesting than any other genre. The romance, your unknown, is what's this other person? Who are they? What are they like? Are they going to love me? Are they going to hate me? And so all your your unknowns are centered around that that other one or two people on the other side of the romance uh, equation. When you look at fantasy, it's about what is our 
questing team going to face? The, the author spends much time to establish the world building of the story, and then you have the foundation, and then you can understand, oh, wait a minute, what's that? Where'd that come from? You know, kind yeah. of thing. And then that makes it exciting. But science fiction is a whole different thing because we move to, to whole different worlds, and we take people who are from a full-gravity world with a nice yellow sun, and we throw them into a world with two red dwarf suns, uh, orbiting each other, and the gravity is just weird, and the magnetic fields do strange things. That you you have this whole genre or section of magic that behaves differently than what you expect. Well, I think that Michael uses a lot of monsters as well as, as some weird elements when it comes to him because your your stuff is space oriented. Yeah, um, I try. It's fun to imagine some of the things that could be out there, and. Probably the scariest thing would be to find out there are alien races out there that are like us. Because if you think about it, if, if you were from another nasty. race and you came to Earth, yes, we are. It's kind of a scary thing. Yeah, you did a little bit of that, I think, in, in Nightcraft. You kind of borrowed bodies, which uh, to me is is really scary uh, side of uh, you know body snatchers thing going on there. But it did show the uh, that the human could be the, the scariest thing in the universe. You know, when the you know, when the antagonist in the story turns out not to be the invading aliens, but but the doctor's uh, wife, <laughs> oh, wow. she becomes in that, and how she's able to instead of becoming a mutant, you know, becoming like more like the aliens, she she took her her agenda, and she was bad for everybody. So it goes back to the old <laughs> movie. an episode somewhat along that line with the robot men who came to Earth. And one woman is taken, and she becomes their queen. Yeah. But yeah, inevitably, yeah. she overpowers and begins to reprogram the robot man. Yeah. And he has to destroy her personally in order to destroy the robot man. Yeah. He realizes yeah. that he he can't he can't win here because she's she he needs to destroy her. He needs to destroy her specifically. Yeah, that's right. Do that. Filtered into yeah. the robot man and created all sorts of havoc. <laughs> you know, it's interesting. Like you, you mentioned earlier about romance in science fiction. Uh, a lot of people debate whether or not romance belongs in science fiction, and you know, it's interesting because romance becomes part of the social aspect of, of science fiction. When you talk about um, space travel, colonies, uh, you're not talking about a Monday through Friday job where you come home at dinner time, you know, to the spouse. You know, you could be away for years, decades. You don't know. So all the laws of, of our social network here on Earth, they're going out the window. Yeah, people are gonna. Yeah, you know, how are people going to deal with that? I mean, multiple partners, uh, random partners, uh, clones. Does marriage does marriage go out the window where there's no such thing as a marriage type relationship? I mean, it really, yeah, clone, clones would be a clones, scary thing. I mean, yeah. uh, look, look at Saddam Hussein. Yeah, sure before the original or, or Memorex. You know? uh, <laughs> the movie we saw last year about the moon, I think it was called Just Moon, wasn't it? Yeah. Where they had that solitary individual, yeah. and then towards the end of the film, he discovers. He isn't the original. He's not the original. Minor. He's, yeah. he's a clone, and he's number so and so. The original is already back on Earth. Thing. And so now you've got this piece that really colors the whole rest of the film. What and why and and where is he going to go? What's he going to do? And what's going to happen? And, and other ships coming, and they're expecting this, and all of the challenges that you face as a character in the situation. I think also too the romance. Uh, romance, 
uh, day-to-day things that we go through, whether it be going potty or whatever it is, shaving, all of these things take on whole new aspects when you get into a completely new environment. I mean, I could imagine, I mean, here's something to think about just off the top of my head. Imagine going to a planet populated by people who are plant-based. They're sentient plants. Ah. And so they stumble in upon the astronaut from Earth who is shaving. He is cutting off part of himself. And they they would be absolutely aghast. I mean, just the thought of cutting a limb off yourself would be sacrilegious. And imagine the social impact of that in trying, but wait wait a minute, it's just dead. What do you mean it's dead? (laughs) <laughs> this reminds me of a brand new genre, uh, brand new genre that I was just reading about, and, I, and zombie romances. Yeah. <laughs> Talk about losing your pieces. <laughs> and what was the cartoon you saw on Facebook? Um, I can't remember now. I can't remember now. There was a cartoon. Girl okay, comes yeah, home with yeah. the zombie. And mom is oh, standing yeah. there over them at the couch. I can re- I can see it, but I can't yeah. remember what the the word verbiage was. I don't remember what it, it was, was either. Funny. Yeah, yeah, it, it was, was funny. funny. I don't remember what it was. The girl was like, "But mom, he's." Yeah, well, she she apparently gets into dead things. Yeah, <laughs> I think of it too, though. Like for instance, if we were on a colony, how difficult would it be for a woman to to, to be a child? We're talking about dead things. Oh, <laughs> oh hey, we're back again. This is KWAG Radio, and this is Gabby Holster, and we had a little outage there for a few minutes. And uh, we're back again. I've been Mama Java's, and he is cool in 36th Street, Phoenix. Also, just to let you know, your guest call-in number, if you want to ask a question or just, you know, be a part of this, this uh, you know, a bunch of rambling on uh, different subjects and obviously writing uh, fiction stories and where ideas come from and the call-in number is 714-242-5145 so we were talking about uh, zombie romances and dead things I don't remember where we were headed now <laughs> lost the train of thought Again? Yes. Okay. We were talking. That's right. It was talking about women's pregnancies relative to different gravity settings on wherever planets or moons you might not be on. And some research that that I've got, generally speaking, the gravity effects go hand in hand with the atmosphere effects. If you have the normal pressure in the atmosphere that you would normally have as a, as as a person, then that's going to help your body contain. Uh, the pregnancy. The lower gravity of the moon surface, however, is going to actually make it a little easier, probably a little less back strain. <laughs> oh, uh, you're, you're already weighed one-sixth what you did on Earth. Man, I love that. So, you know, <laughs> a woman who starts out at, say, 110 pounds, she gains 30 pounds of baby weight, plus all the other stuff. She's still only at, that's the, that comes to 150, divide that by six, Talking. Well, what would I say? 150. 150 pounds divided by, by six. six comes by. Uh, 30. 45, 50 pounds total weight. What woman wouldn't care <laughs> yeah. if that was the case, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, but I think you bring up a, a valid point about the idea of uh, test tube p
there's a whole slew of science that goes with that that we still haven't perfected. Yeah. Yeah, you wonder, too, what the responsibilities every individual would have, like, for instance, on a space station. You know, could the group afford for a woman to be out of action during the time that she's, she's having the pregnancy or even immediately after? So I wonder if at some point it might become the type of thing where it's almost like, you know, to actually have a child, it's almost like having an orphan. Uh, see, I'm, I'm going to take exception to that because I'm not sure she would be out of action. Think about it. But if you're on if you're on a space station with no gravity, or if you're on another planet or moon where the gravity is way lower, would she really be taken out of action? The, the challenges that she faces on Earth at full gravity and full pressure don't exist in those areas, so the strain on her physical body isn't there. Would she be taken out of action then, or would she work right up to the day of the birth? Well, why? Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, because it has to do with uh, pushing in gravity, and uh, the baby's body automatically go, you know, starts, starts doing the process of pushing. And the, the process. Well, we're back again. I believe the bloody aliens are jamming us. Oh, bloody They just don't want to hear about human gestation and pregnancy. It's got to be what it is. Yeah. I would think they'd be interested in how to how that's happening. Well, since this is a Saul service broadcast, we want to be considerate of our listeners. And instead of cussing, I'll just say, well, this is one of them. There you go. What, I, what we're talking about is, is the idea of pregnancy in space or on another planet where gravity is different. And we were talking about the gestation, and you were saying, Patty, about how the process yeah. actually works. And, and most of it is muscular contractions from the, the woman's body. That's and true, very little of it has to do with gravity. And in yeah. fact, on Earth, many women actually are taking nowadays to water births, which reduces well, the do. impact of, that, of gravity upon the birth. So, again, I... I and I, I think you're thinking that perhaps the child... May very well actually uh, adapt pretty quickly because it is used to being in water in the body anyway. Well, it's used to floating around doing nothing. Floating around doing nothing. You know? It's going to continue to do the same thing. And, and think about this uh, a newborn baby that weighs an average of, say, 7 to 10 pounds on Earth is going to weigh what? Ounces. A pound and a half on the moon. <laughs> And who's to be worried about holding a pound and a half? No, I mean, if anything, you're going to have to tack that baby down or something. <laughs> yeah, they'll, they'll kick that kid in the butt. Yeah, like a <laughs> but this brings up some whole new sets of issues. Now, think yeah. about this. The kid weighs barely a pound and a half, and say, let's go. He's off somewhere. Let's go six months down the road. He's ready to start crawling. So now he weighs typically what thirty pounds on Earth, if that. No, that would be a heavy baby, wouldn't it? Very heavy. So baby. we're looking at still twenty pounds, maybe at, at six months. I've seen a few that weight. Yeah. Okay. That and so he's starting to crawl. This kid's going to be like super baby on the moon. He's going to be jumping out of the crib. So I feel like Superman so here. Has, there's there's an interesting thought there. Yeah. Instead of having a play Earth. bloody aliens we're at it again anyway what I was talking about was the the infants 
that we might give birth, that we might have born in space. We talked about having instead of a play pen, we got a play cage. Well, what might be the first skills that an infant in space is going to learn? They're not going to learn to crawl. They aren't going to learn to walk. They're not going to learn to run. They're going to be like chimpanzees. They're going to learn to swing. They're going to learn to kick off. Man, that'd be so cool to be a kid there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but, okay, let's take it another step. Okay. Get going what now. <laughs> what do you give a kid who is for their first birthday? What kind of toys are going to be fun for a child who's living in space growing up without gravity? A ball and chain. <laughs> no, not a ball and chain. A chain and an magnet. Grappler. Oh, yeah. See, there you go. It's an anchor. An anchor. Uh, That's a new definition of being grounded. <laughs> and a ground wire. Yes. There you go. We don't want no static electricity building up with these flies. No. His, his anchor across the wall. Start and of course, now then that issue. goes into the design of the space station facility. If you're wanting to anchor your child, you've got to have a piece of metal around for that thing to go. But you also want them to be able to move around a little bit. So either A, tether. you put a retractable tether on that anchor, yeah. or you have a section of your wall that's for baby. You you know, know, nowadays we I, do I the... I see those here. Well, the nowadays... I can see a section of the wall in your cabin has this little little slide across it. And slide the ball in the channel. Go right back and, back and forth along that. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah, wait a minute. We have a severe hazard here. Severe hazard? A severe hazard. Okay, which, which one is this? this is I mean, I can think of all sorts of things. I, oh, my God. Only men can think about this. <laughs> Imagine you get a kid over. And, and you, you strap the child <laughs> onto the bassinet or on the changing table, okay? So they're able. And you open the diaper, and the boy wow. lets loose with the fire hose. <laughs> I know. I have my brother. He and now you have all of this fluid floating around in the cabin. Oh, my. It could have long-range implications. <laughs> and we can only hope they NEP. Especially when the captain of the space station comes walking through the door and gets plastered in the face. Oh, my. <laughs> yeah, these are the type of things that if you think about it, it wouldn't be as easy as yeah. it sounds. There's a lot exactly. of yeah. Even the smallest issues. The smallest, yeah, these details bring new challenges that offer great humorous situations yeah. for the stories, yeah. but they also bring up all sorts of things that we might face as we go forward. We should do a book on that. Yeah. What, you happens, know, what happens when you sneeze? <laughs> I know. That well, you can't, you have to, well, you have to set about sneezing. and your hands up real quick, you're going to go backwards. <laughs> yeah. The momentum will carry you backwards. You'll never get your hands up. Never, your never get up there in time. You're never going to get to your nose in time, and so this stuff's going to go all over the place. I know that that we talked about this in, in the helmet. You know, oh, man, you can't sneeze in the helmet. Yeah, oh, I mean, how you going to do it? That's going to make yeah. a nasty mess on the inside of that screen. I love your best so much. Yeah, that's where the simplest things here on Earth, you know, if you were in space, everything changes. It's a whole new set of rules. I can see it now. One thing we can market right away. What, windshield wiper? A windshield wiper <laughs> inside the helmet. I like that. Yeah, that would be fun. That would be fun. Uh, but, know, but here's a thought. Would we be getting colds? Absolutely. 
But right, yeah, don't care about gravity. They don't care about anything other than air that they need to go through. Yeah. Right. And in many cases, viruses go dormant in, in a vacuum. Well, that's what they I'm saying. They don't die. They just become okay. dormant. So as okay. soon as there's moisture and, and oxygen stuff, they, they, okay. they step out of dormancy, and then they become vicious little buggers. Jacking on everything. Kind of like a two-year-old coming after you. Yeah. With chocolatey hands with mud on their backside. Found <laughs> <laughs> all over the place. Oh, think about that. Mud pies in space. Where's a kid going to get mud pies? Well, you got. You even to, you want got, to think about that one. <laughs> you got the, the dust, the moon dust outside. The yeah, what about area. on the space station, which is then? Well, you got no space gravity. station, you wouldn't have. You wouldn't have. Uh, although you do, you still have worms there, so therefore you would have mud, wouldn't you? Oh, now see, there's another situation that could be really uncomfortable. Walking into the um, the garden of the space station. And somebody's been stirring up the worm bed, and there's worms floating in the air. And you walk in with your mouth open. Yeah, that's so weird, because I had a dream about that last night. Seriously. I had a dream that the, that the worms were going crazy, and they were growing too fast. And so they were coming, like, sprouting up out of the ground. Uh-huh. And I was thinking about your book, obviously. Which book? Or yours, on well, the worms, you know, oh. what... what how would we keep the worms under control up on the moon? And, and well, on the moon, apparently it's bothering me in the back. You still got the gravity. There's still going to be a sense of up and down. And the worms are going to want to burrow into the the ground. They're going to be looking for something that has the consistency that they're used to. Of course, you know one one thing that I I was curious about and, and worked on one day was the idea that you know many of the things we're talking about, just the, the, the giving birth on the moon or in space. Um, having a child and all of the challenges that you're going to face on that. Well, what happens after five or six generations? We've exposed this new environment, which if we just rule out everything, we've, we've pressurized to a full earth pressure, um, say at sea level, so we got one, one pressure, you've got the oxygen nitrogen, you got all the food, everything's there, but the only single difference is the gravity is one-sixth that of earth. What might that have an effect upon the the development, not only of the newborn babes, but of the adults as they go forward. You know, our leg muscles will change. Well, to be taller, yeah. thinner. Taller, thinner. Very likely those would be obvious uh, extensions. Taller? Sure. Sign me up. <laughs> <laughs> I never considered that. So, uh, I had a child on Earth. On, on the moon, then my child will be obviously taller. We would think that that would be one of the things. That gradually, we would see an increase in height, perhaps, or might we actually see the reverse? Because if height, one of the things about evolution is evolution selects for that which with that which is good for us. Height on the moon actually would be a bad thing. We're going to be tunneling. We're going to be in confined spaces. Mm-hmm. So height becomes a bad thing. We're going to be constantly bending over. Oh wow! Yeah, well, actually, wouldn't the the nature and in its infinite wisdom uh, cause a person to either stoop, or and then all of the generations after that would be the same way? They would eventually be shorter, just enough to be able to, to live in that habitat. I think so. I, I think natural so. law, physics. Well, sure. That's that's what I was talking about. Or with, physiology. With 
Now imagine if you spent first half of your life in space and you had them back Earth. Now because that would be very less difficult. gravity, your yeah, organs are weaker because they have to work less. Well, as I said about any child born there, they're really not going to be able to come back. And, and NASA yeah. has, has studied this at length, and their conclusion is that if you exercise in space in such a way that it targets the muscles dealing that normally you don't use, but if you target those muscles, you give them exercise, they're going to feel the need to continue to develop. And so human development would remain relatively stable. Um, but there's still going to be other problems we're going to miss. Uh, exor- people in the, in the exercise business have learned that if you isolate a set of muscles for a long enough period of time, the peripheral muscles can sometimes be affected detrimentally and become flaccid or southern, and then you end up with uneven development. And that be- that's a whole new set of issues. I mean, you might have people... The body would really change then. But never have to extend or right. have to let something down low. So you get these huge biceps, and their triceps are just kind of things by comparison. That would really change the body structure. It would. Yeah. Long-term exposure in space does, does cause bone loss simply because you're not putting any stress on it to cause to engender the bone to expand, contract, and as a result, to grow. And your stories, I know that they're they're up in space for a long for a certain period of time. Did you have to compensate for these issues? Yeah, um, say, uh, 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 it's one of the things I think you assume, like they have their artificial gravity controlled on the ships. Uh, the planets that they deal with, the races that they deal with, are similar environments to Earth, yeah. where they're all comparable. And you figure in a universe with so many planets, it's just like what we're finding today with the the new advanced telescopes we have out there, how many possible planets out there they say are very, very similar to, to Earth. Yeah. Um, just this past week, they mentioned there's two of them that revolve around a star that uh, I believe they say that's two and a half times the size of the Earth and would have a, a year would be about 200 days. So they said it would be very, very likely to sustain life. Yeah. So there's things like this. Uh, we're starting to see more of this. And if you can imagine going to one of these planets, odds are if it's Quartz light. We're not the first ones there. You know, it's home to somebody. Yeah, yeah. and then that's yeah. going to be an interesting thing. Yeah, so that's um, where I think my premise with a lot of my with the uh, space travel and the different uh, speeds because you know, they're all our, comparable our, planets. I think our audience is becoming uh, a bit more uh, what's the word uh, sophisticated, savvy. savvy. Yeah, there, all this stuff is on the internet. It's, it's on Facebook. It's everywhere. People are seeing man left and right, and so they're more aware. Like say, Michael, the planets, the different similarities, and so as we write, we have to. I think they're more aware of science in general. Days of saying we go to a planet, the planet's got to go to gravity. We're live again. I guess we're going to continue to have this uh, issue with it going in and out. It has a problem with uh, establishing itself on the Internet and keeping the connection. So sorry about that, everyone. And we were talking about uh, gravity and obviously as live, living on the moon. And also we're talking about, well, let's talk about the monsters. Okay. Let's talk about the monsters for a while. So tell us about monsters that you think would be living on other planets like you were you had in space. 
Well, one of the things I, I think with monsters, when we think of monsters, we think of monsters as being stupid, having like primal instincts. Uh, you know, I think one of the things when you deal with space, uh, we we could wind up with a lot of creatures with an intellect level equal to ours, if not greater. You know, basically something that, that could outsmart us. Yeah, you know, where we become the hunted instead of the hunter. Uh, so that's, that's one of the things that uh, I like to try to feed on. It's like a survival thing. You think to go on an adventure, to go someplace new, you know, you could get in the, like the Friday the 13th horror where it's slashing gore, everybody gets killed type of thing. But to think, if you were really there, what are some of the survival things you could, that you could really legitimately try to do? Uh, some things, like even like on a spaceship, like a lot of the movies we grew up with, it was like all the gunfights, gun battles on the oh, spaceships. Yeah. You really couldn't do that. If you put a hole, if you breach the hull, you're, you're pretty yeah. much up the creek. Right, uh, right. And that's we, where. Wouldn't like, it slow down the? It was slowed also slow down the blood. Yeah. So now, would it even penetrate? Yeah. Now you mentioned the sword fight at the beginning of the show. Mm-hmm. I like to mix a little bit of sword fight where somebody has a choice between they use like a sword type weapon or they want to use an energy right. type weapon. So I would use uh, I would use a sword. Um, same as even in her and in my book, Tuckhound Child, and uh, several of them. Obviously, it was late 1500s, okay, so they had they had flintlock, but you know they didn't trust him. As you know, it's, it's like it takes too long to to okay. fill the gun. And then of course, it's by that time because I've already slashed somebody up, and it, the fight is already over. Yeah, I think it's almost the lightsabers. Okay. I mean, I that's sort of yeah. Like, yeah. Take me yeah. So, get, take me so you have to look at the practicability of a lot of weapons. Um, some of the right. things I did with, like, for instance, with the Fracture Time trilogy, that starts off with people like us. Uh, they wind up in going into the world of fantasy in the second book, and then by the third book, they wind up in space with futuristic races. And a lot of times, it's their common sense wit, not the advanced knowledge the other species have, that allow them to overcome some of their adversaries. I was thinking about some of the monsters that Sarge was using, and, and what, what kind of planet would uh, Jabba the Hutt have to live in in order to become a giant slug like that? Yeah, that'd be a lot of gravity. <laughs> <laughs> of course, in, in order to kill him, they had to be in a, a, a gravity or, or a planet that, that had more gravity. So uh, it's an interesting process. That you know, the monsters sometimes like talking about the human body changing physiology after decades and 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 longer of of living on the moon. Our bodies will change, or you know, and then people will grow differently. So, are they going to become like aliens? Yeah, yeah, it's an interesting point. Um, now you look, for instance, uh, I just saw on the news the other day they were talking about sharks. Uh, oh yeah, the super. Yeah, two different yeah. types of sharks. Hybrids that they were concerned about because of the weather, cha- the temperature changes of the water. Yeah. Uh, they made it together and they become a hybrid, and the hybrid can adapt to any of the temperature changes. Now, a lot of people always think, you know, the first impression is, oh, they're going to become extinct. Well, smarter creatures yeah. learn to adapt and overcome. And that's exactly Darwinism in, in its broadest sense, right there. Is it's the sharks change their physiology in order to suit the to change of weather. Yeah, and it's amazing that that happens so quick. Yeah. You know, so it just goes to show you that the, the, it, it seems like like a natural selection process based on whatever the conditions, your body will change. How far the changes go, that's something. Only time will tell. Yeah, and and there are so many different divergent paths that can occur from this aspect or that aspect. I mean, maybe the temperature goes up or it goes down or whatever. 
violence that can affect all that. You know, one of the things that I remember from horror films I've seen in the past, the ones that really affect me, one aspect of a, of a horror film is something that is insidious, like killer algae that grows into, well, you, you remember uh, yeah, The Blob, yeah, yeah. The, film, the Blob, yeah. that was a, a big film in its day. Yeah, I mean, everybody went to see that one. That was a scary one for that its time. That was a scary one. That was a hit of its time. But, but what really made it scary, I think, was the the intense, kill it. suspense that you had. Yeah. The suspense that led up to, well, where did they go? What happened to them? And then you get the reveal, and you see, learn the monster, and now you're trying to destroy it. And, and how do you destroy a big blob of goo? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> let's think of aliens. You know what they the do now? They came out. Yeah. They go down to Home Depot and buy a bunch of that uh, paint solidifying gel and throw it in. Yeah. And watch it just turn into this big pile of muck. And of course, yeah. then the question is, they turn to the government and say, "Okay, now you got to clean it up." Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Biohazard. Biohazard. Yeah. That's great. But yeah, you were talking about Alien. That's, I remember the first time that came out. That, yeah. That's scary. Now that was Jamie's that was me. good because it, it puts you in a spaceship environment. It's always yeah, most of the areas are dark. Everything was awesomely good. It was just the yeah. typical thing. But and the, then all of a sudden, everything in the ship in was the middle so. Of the meal, Everything happens, yeah. And you don't really see the the, the creature until the end. You can't yeah, expect it to happen. It's just shock. Yeah. yeah. So you think about it. You know, like we always assume like a spaceship is being something small, like being inside your car. Yeah, yeah we're talking about all the, the, the different things that are going to be involved with the spaceship. It's, it's going to have to have some size to it. Well, um, even the International Space Station is, what, seven different rooms? And these rooms are pretty good size. They're like hallways more than anything else, but still, you, you've got a really amount of space for six people. Yeah. That's going to be interesting. Um, SpaceX, uh, the company that's, uh, you know, they're, I guess they're going to be pretty big with uh, space travel. You know, they seem like they're making leaps and bounds on a lot of things. Uh, you know, well, usable launch that. vehicle. Well, um, yeah, with, with SpaceX, they just, they, they, they set a plan. They've followed that plan to the le- mostly to the letter for the last, what, six years they've been in business. And as a result, they've met their goal. They've met their financial goals for the most part and so forth. And, and yeah, they'll they'll be one of the, the, the vanguards into, into orbital operations, that's for sure. Yeah. Now, you mentioned like 2012 at the beginning of the show. Mm-hmm. Now, you wonder all the different possibilities for next year, things that could happen. Um We've talked about global changes in the world, not just climate-wise, not just economically, not just by government, but it could be maybe, you know, with companies like SpaceX out there, maybe at some point we'll be sending a colony into space. Yeah, we can only hope. Yeah, I mean, I, I have no doubt. In fact, one of the one of the things that I'm positing in, in one of the books I'm putting together now is, is the idea that you have climate change, you have uh, the seas are rising because the poles are melting, all due to climate change. You have geological effects that are happening. Scientists are coming to the realization that a lot of these things are part of the cycle of the Earth. Well, they're not. what they're not talking about is, is what's the cycle of our civilization? And they're, they're, what I posit is that there is a cycle of our civilization. If you take the Mayan calendar and assume that there were other periods of 5,000 years prior to ours, and that civilization reached a point and the cycle hit, and they didn't survive, so that civilization was dead and gone, so we had a little start over. But 
this time our civilization developed to such a point that we will survive whatever cataclysm occurs. But now here's a new thought. What I posit is is that our humanity cycle is causing us to anticipate that cycle change, suspecting yeah. that there's a genetic trigger that says we're close to the end of the cycle. In the same way that women can feel their cycle, we can feel our biorhythm cycles, we feel the, the cycles of Earth and Moon, so too we, can, we could, as a group, as a species, feel this coming change. And so we're seeing riots, we're seeing economic things, we're seeing uncertainty in business, uncertainty in politics. Or we the guys, leaders, that were everybody leaders, flipping everybody off. Everybody flipping everybody off, anger's on the rise. Uh, you got people with less interest in, in being considerate. Uh, anger. Tensions, right, you can feel it yeah. every day. Yeah, we seem to regress. And I think that when, when it all comes to the head, when, when we hit that... When, when the teeter-totter teeter levels out, there's going to be something happen, and we're going to have the calling of the herd, and when those who survive, survive, and begin to rebuild the portions of civilization that got damaged, now we've got a new challenge, and the tension yeah. will be gone, the, the, the earth will do well, it'll its thing. will be a different thing. kind of tension. Yeah. Now it will be a new survival tension. It will be survival tension. I think that when you, as you mentioned, SpaceX, I think that our society needs a new frontier. We need that frontier not only just to expand our society, also as almost a safety valve. If we look back in history at the Old West and the Americas, when we had people going out there, you had the frontier, you had gunslingers, you had bank robbers, you had outlaws, and kids had heroes and they had outlaw heroes, and yet because you had difference and kids could grow up knowing morality, ethics, and values. And they could you, you had object lessons. Today you have yes. famous sports figures making way amounts too broad. of money. Bring it in here. And yeah. and they're just not good role models. Yeah. But that's that's going way out there. But we're we're talking about twenty twelve and, and what the what we call the great change. The great change. Do you and think I it's think gonna be this year or do you think it's gonna be next year? <laughs> yeah I it's funny. Uh, I read one article where they say that there's actually the way we interpreted it, the Mayan calendar is actually 2035, and not 2012. It's a range from yeah. anywhere yeah. from 20, 2011 all the way out to 2035, 2040. So we might have that long a period in order to actually even out. Yeah, and I wonder. I don't think it's going to be like the end of the world. Like people are going to be fire and brimstone. I think there's going to be some fantastic change, something that's going to affect us all. It's going to change the way civilization lives. Um, sometimes I wonder if you think back to the, the the ancient Egyptians. You know, when one day all of a sudden they developed all the advanced maps. You know, when they did the pyramids. Uh, maybe we're going to get a visit from somebody. You know, extra terrestrial. Maybe a religious icon. If you take the the number of the long count, which is roughly 5,200 years, and you count backwards from approximately 2012. You end up with 3114. Well, the interesting thing about 3114 is that the Egyptian kingdoms didn't unite until right before that in 25 to 2700 BC. So, was there a coincidence? Right before that, I mean, that's an awful long time. And you think about it, it was only, it was barely uh, 500 years, no, 
Yeah, barely 500 years after 3110-3114 that the Egyptians actually rose above the issues. And that's about, if you look at the the way that civilization was developing from, from the small nomadic groups into the towns and it would take 500 years for that development to occur. Yeah, it seemed through cycles. Every so many so many years, you had something that it, there was a leap, like a leap to another tier. Mm-hmm. It would be interesting to see if if that's the case here, because like I said, there's you get the feeling something's going to change. Two, somewhere between 100 and 300 years after that, we go through that teeter totter change. I think we're going to see some phenomenal stuff happening. I think there's there's an awakening period that I think goes on, and then and then the technology gets that jump start, and then it's like all hell. You know what? The interesting to do as a story is to try and anticipate that 500 years out. You know, we have Star Trek, we've got Doctor Who that that's explored some of that. We've got some of these other things that explored that, but I don't think anybody's ever thought about it. And we've had post-apocalyptic stories, and they're almost very big now. Very big now. Yeah. And I'm thinking if we saw something along the lines of take the 2012, but what happens after 2012? If we use the history from 3110 forward, mm-hmm. I'll bet we could check out some interesting and intriguing And things. I would think yeah. that the historians would start to look at that kind of thing, yeah. uh, start tracking those kind of things. It's, it's, yeah. it's really astounding to me that nobody's gone backwards from the 2012. Nobody's gone to look backwards and say, well, what happened in 3114? What happened in 8500? Are there parallels? And yeah. you would think so. Say, there are. There are parallel events. Yeah, this just brings a, a thought. Says, uh, I know that Glenn Beck said that if you really want to know what's going to happen in the world or, or what has happened, look you need history. to say, no, no, you don't look at history. You read the fiction stories. Yeah. The fiction authors and fiction writers have a tendency to see patterns like no other animal in the world. <laughs> but history always repeats itself. It doesn't look the same, but it does repeat itself. You, you still have that the same kind of leaders recurring. You have the same yeah. kind of groups growing, developing, and then falling The same down. trends. The same trends yeah. occur. Uh, we see fashion, very obviously, where nostalgia is coming back. The skirt lines go up and down and up and down, and now they're going up and down so fast, they're all the, all different lengths now. Yeah. And, and so you see people with different different taste. Uh, in fact, we even see some outfits where <laughs> uh, we're getting into where, clothing where now. you have a dress with those ruffly things on it, and they can literally reach down and tack it up underneath, and it becomes a short skirt. <laughs> they can reach down and undo it, and it becomes a long skirt. A convertible. Roll it, it's a roll. Yeah, yeah. Mini blind on a body. I was uh, watching The View uh, today, and, and Justin Bieber was on there, and he's got these pants that are riding down on his hips, you know? If you lift up his shirt, you'll see his underwear. And so they asked him, so how do you learn to walk in that thing? And they, he says, I waddle. And so I guess it's appropriate you learn to waddle now instead of later in life. <laughs> and <it's laughs> I, I, I drive a lot during the day, and I see so many young people with their trousers yeah. down, almost to their waist, to below their waist, it. and it's like, and they're sitting there. They've got one hand in their pocket, holding up their pants, <laughs> trying to get across the street in a hurry, but they can only take baby steps because they're, they're, way, their pants they're, their down. Crotches down around their knees, so they can't take long steps. And you wonder why yeah. is it so important? That they, that they do that waddle. What do they call it the plumber's crack? <laughs> that's, that's even worse, yeah. Uh, 
Bubba's crack, it, I mean, they, that's something that, that happens when the guy's working. And see, this is like purposefully wearing bad clothes. For what? Well, now, you have to you have to understand that. A pl- most plumbers that have the plumber's crack, think about it. They're always underneath a sink, so their clothes are really stretched. And they're usually very rotund individuals. Yeah. And you wonder, how did they get themselves under the sink in the first place? Yeah. <laughs> and now they've got this loaded weapon pointed into your kitchen, and you're just like, wait a minute. <laughs> a little weapon? Okay. Well, yeah, if he's had Mexican food for I, lunch, that's yeah. a loaded weapon. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, a warning would be nice. Yeah. <laughs> hey, plumber, did you have beans for lunch? You ain't getting in my kitchen. <laughs> Put a little plumber sticker on them. That's interesting. Like, we talked about like different types of creatures. Um, I just saw a couple weeks ago that uh, the one movie, uh, Battle for L.A., Oh. And that was kind of a, a unique view of aliens coming you to Earth. That one? Uh, a lot of robotics. Uh, that was pretty cool, and it, that was a l- little bit more believable. The type of thing that would happen. I mean, aliens just couldn't come here and just freelance around the Earth. You know, they showed yeah. like these like creature like you know robot exteriors. Uh, you know, I guess the interior they had a controlled environment. Um, there's a lot of things about it that made it believable. Some that they had different aspects, like um, like there there were the, the ground troops. There were Attack units. So there were a whole lot of things to it. That yeah. Now, which film was that? Battle for L.A. Battle for L.A. I did see that, and that yeah. was very intriguing. And and they hit at first just in the L.A. area, and they established yeah. basically a typical military goal was a beachhead. Yeah, it's probably just because somebody didn't want to spend a whole lot of money going somewhere else. <laughs> I, 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 do, was, <laughs> I, I seem to recall that I think Budget later change. on in the film, as you get towards the 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 the, the third quarter of the film you hear a news report that talks about that there are other landings elsewhere in the world. Yeah, major and cities. So yeah, and it becomes a, a major invasion. Yeah. But uh, that was that was interesting, though, because they took it from Williams' point of view, a tactic, uh, what, are, what's, what would be a good tactical plan for taking out the... Uh, communications, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. infrastructure, and military. Yeah, and it actually, it actually forced us to, to... You know, they actually wound up fighting us our way. Well, and you know that would be a great premise for a story um, on, two, on two, two directions. One, uh, write a story that would be a battle plan of how would you take out the Earth's defensive systems? What would you target? And in what order? And how would you attack them? Well, let's see. Um, did, did you ever read about the New World Order? Not, well, I've seen New World <laughs> Order mentioned a dozen times, but which New World Order are you referring to? Yeah. Well, apparently there's one... Uh, I guess the things that, that I'm reading about lately on it, uh, it's a, it's more of a, a financial way of taking over the over the world. Uh, basically, the governments borrow money from the World Bank. They become indebted to the World Bank, and it's kind of like if you buy a new car and you can't afford it, you know, to pay payments, they repossess it. Where the corporation so, becomes the government. Correct. You see, that it's a very common theme throughout science fiction. Yeah. Um, although, um, what I'm wondering is, is I think I think there would be a lot of intrigue in the machinations to get there. And I think for, for a lot of readers, particularly mystery readers and readers of suspense, would really love that kind of story. If it were science fiction, I really think they'd care. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm also thinking of uh, the, the, the two tracks. One, an alien race coming to Earth and having to plan, well, okay, they've got their financial system, they've got their societies, they've got their different warring crafts, and what would they do to make it not seem like an invasion? 
and how would that actually happen? The other side of the coin is, is how might we do that to another race? What would be the plan of attack, the intrigue, the setting up the, the, the chain reaction events, and, and what are some of the problems that an invading force would come up against in trying to do that? Well, we, we saw a movie about uh, something like that recently, uh, Stormtroopers. Was, uh, shoot, what's the name? Something, shoot, something well, Troopers. Starship, Starship troopers? troopers. Yeah. Where you've got, you know... Well, they had to find the brain bug. Right, which they didn't know about. But if they were able to... Brain bug. If they were <laughs> able to communicate, like... Um, uh, what was the movie that was not too long ago? Um, Sector 9? District I mean, 9? District 9. District yeah, 9, yeah. yeah. Where, where it's it, changing. It a bit to be able to divide and conquer the class warfare. You know, if you were to yeah. go to another planet, and you could find, you know, by luring maybe... Some of the some of the more intelligent beings there, and so you, you provide them something that makes them more superior. Whether you know, obviously money would matter to them. Well, whether that's the classic way that humans have done metal. over the years to fight amongst ourselves. Yeah. You know, the arms dealer comes up and sneaks into one country and says, "Here, I'll give you." Uh, and Star Trek did that in one of the original series episodes, uh, where the Klingons went in and sold flintlocks to one side, and uh-huh. then they came back and met the other side and said, well, we'll sell you the flint locks, and then you'll have the even thing. But you want to have an advantage, so we'll give you repeaters. So they sold them the repeaters. Well, then they had to come over here, and so they played both sides against yeah. each other. And it, yeah. was, it was a nice episode. Kirk came on the phone and all. Yeah. I had to fix it. That's what it was interesting. District 9, when they started introducing the drugs into some of the areas there with yeah. some of the aliens, and you wound up with, like, like the... Really, the bottom barrel aliens that were just like drug addicts. Yeah, and they I were know, yeah. And then you had the, the smart ones that were planning to how to get but out they, of there. They also did a, a classic um, uh, a human thing of contain and conquer. Yeah. yeah. And, and that's what yeah. did that. And, uh, and yeah. that was interesting. They had to utilize the human who was turned into the alien and originally used their weapons yeah. to kill them because apparently there's no other way to kill them than with their own weapons. Yeah. Uh, and of course, I did love yeah. the part where he becomes a hero and it changes enough that he can now use their weapon. Right yeah, yeah, yeah. That was cool. Yeah. yeah. But it does make you realize. I mean, some of the some of the, the ways you could go out there and you could affect another civilization if we were, you know, go to other planets and find other life forms. You know, and that's where like, with some special my newer series, the Space Frontier series, you get into that a lot where it's almost like the more things change, the more they stay the same. Yeah. You know. Uh-huh. It's it's like the uh, food cycle, the food chain yeah, that we yeah, have. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. we are simply one step we, along that food chain. We think that we would like to be above everything, but we're not really. Yeah. We just taste like chicken. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we're the world. Or chicken I, tastes I, like us. Who knows? Yeah. That's Patty it. and I were talking a few days ago about how the war of the world was really a depressing yeah, story it was depressing. and film because we didn't win. We didn't win. It was very unusual for for a story like that because we didn't win. That's right. We yeah. were simply bystanders. We were the um, we were the chaff beneath the war machine, and it was the war machine yeah. that got beat up by the microbe. I mean, yeah. it was but kind of like in uh, Independence Day, where they you know they fought against the oppressor. Yeah. Um, but and we didn't get that chance yeah. in War of the Worlds. Independence so, Day was literally a remake of War of the Worlds, but us actually winning. True, that's yeah. was us retaliating and fighting back and finding a way to beat the alien. Yeah. Um, 
and that, and that's what made it such a, you know, we love that. And you know, there was a typically anticlimactic perspective of that. A typically American perspective to that film. Oh sure, yeah. Besides all the rah-rah <laughs> stuff, the president's speech and all of that, when the warhead was delivered, there was no thought in the minds of the people that this war, anything goes. If we destroy them all, we destroy them all. If we yeah. just decimate them, well, that's okay, too. Then we get on an even keel. Uh-huh. But the yeah. idea is it was survive or die. Yeah. And, and I think that that is... Um, that's a wartime attitude that is not does not seem to be shared anywhere else. Hmm. You know, you have you have the militants that we see throughout the world aren't survive or die. These are kill everybody that doesn't believe. In that's different. Then you have the the, the the typical European perspective, which is well, just talk it out. Well, you got to remember that H. G. Wells wrote uh, wrote that story, where the world's and that was a long time ago, and that's one of the first. You know, science fiction story next to time, you know, time machine. Yeah. Um, yeah. Time machine also had the same issue. Had, it wasn't. Yeah. We didn't win. We, we didn't were really actually win. the bad guys in that one. Yeah. Well, yeah. we went yeah. in and changed things because we thought we had the right to. Yeah. And uh, that's kind of yeah, American, but then again, it was a British movie, so it was. But then again, British have always been one of those conquering countries. Imperialistic. Of, there you go. But they're, they're, while being imperialistic, they're not necessarily, they don't have this attitude that Americans do, which is manifest destiny. And there's a very big difference between imperialistic and manifest destiny. Well, England Manif- doesn't know where else to go. With imperialism, it's about command, conquer, and mm-hmm. now it's ours. But with manifest destiny, it's the assumption that it was ours to begin with. And or we demanded the, that it was ours. Yeah. yeah, and that's 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 uniquely American, and I think we take that with us in in our science fiction that we write, whether it be horror, whether it be sci-fi, romance. There there is in American fiction that aspect of manifest destiny, which if you read these things from other countries, you read suspense from Europe or England, it's very very different. I mean, just look yeah. at the difference between Doctor Who and American sci-fi. Doctor Who is yeah. is beloved in both continents. Because it's different. Well, I I didn't you. love it until like a couple of years ago. <laughs> until you got sucked into it. And before it's like, okay, all these stupid aliens, and what's up with us, you know? Um, and I didn't really get sucked into it until uh, I said, yeah, a couple of years ago. And, and that's because of data tenants. Well, the story changed. It changed. We're fine. Okay. And but but even so, I think any of any of the people who have been Doctor Who fans over the years can remember at least two or three different Doctors and, and what they liked about each one. Yeah. And I think all of us, in our own reading, one, I think. we find characters that, that, re- that we relate to and, and enjoy. Which is kind of funny, considering it's just supposed to be the same person. Then then why are there why are we have a favorite one? <laughs> <laughs> and, and the Doctor addresses this a little in, in, in the David Tennant group series, where he talks about even though the memories are there, even though the experiences are there, even though the general personality traits are there, you still, as you go forward in life, you respond to things differently as time goes on. Something's different this time around than it was the last time. And you know, that's why the doctors can be different. 
that brought up as uh, I was talking to somebody yesterday about the Dalai Lama and said, well, you know, reincarnation. I just wrap my head around that. And specifically, you know, here the Dalai Lama has been reincarnated. I don't know how many times I'd have to look it up, but um, enough, enough, enough. So you would think it, you know, he's that old, you could know better. But uh, so many times he's gone through the same thing, but doesn't remember what he did the time before. What's the point? What's the point of reincarnating and not remember anything that you learned in your previous life? Because you have to keep starting over and over and over. It's got to be like a bad movie, man. Yeah. <laughs> Groundhog Day. Yeah. Set in a bad way. Oh, <laughs> yeah, one of the things I noticed, too, like I, I know as a kid growing up, I was doing a lot of the sci-fi shows, The Outer Limits, Twilight Zone, anything. Do you like remember that? the serials that were on usually after school? And I... I Keep getting the impression that they may have been unique to, to, to Arizona, but yeah. there was like there was Starman. Yeah, I there was Starman. Uh, there was Mystery Theater that had. Mystery, oh yeah. Uh, the more we were yelling at. Yeah, Mystery Theater three thousand. Oh man. Yeah. You had so many. And look back on it, they were really cheesy. Yeah. But, but that's what made them. They had exciting good stories. Yeah. I mean, Batman, the series that we all know and and love to hate today, yeah. is more yeah. of a campy version of those. You had the, the music and then what will happen by the announcer and, and all these kind of things and the cliffhangers at the end of every 20 minutes. Yeah. You know. I was watching the Green Hornet, the original te- television Green Hornet, uh-huh. and I'm thinking, did we actually watch this crap? <laughs> <laughs> you know, too, it, it makes you realize, like, um, like I said, back to the 60s and 70s, Hollywood spearheaded a lot of the, the public, uh, our culture, our views. Yeah. Because they, like, they support space program. A lot of the shows that came out, we had a lot of movies, a lot of things that promote space. Now, if you look today, we have no sci-fi shows on that have to do with space. Uh, they've all stopped running. Uh, Star yeah. uh, Star Trek, Star Trek, uh, Star Wars, um, even even the short-lived uh, Planet of the Apes. Yeah. Anything that had to do with with ships in space. I mean, the only Fighters. sci-fi shows we have are, are ground-based, and it's it's kind of sad because there's so much. Out there, at three, well, the, the sky's the limit when you're talking about it. First, kind of got a strange, less parallel universe. It would go ground based. Go ground based. Two cities linked through the through the But and one of the things that I think goes into this is, is where we are with our space program. Mm-hmm. The United States has led space development, whether specifically in technology or just by guiding others, uh, for fifty some odd years now, mm-hmm. and. That is a wash in uncertainty, and as long as it stays uncertain, our writers, our authors, our movies, our TVs are going to pull back to the Earth and stay there. And I think yeah. shows like Space 1999 could never happen again. Not now. Yeah. So that's yeah. why I'm thinking that maybe a short story based on on life actually on as we could see it. What family well, actually growing up there? And, and, and that's where that's where my book Transit comes into play, where it. it talks about how did he get there and the main character is the very first uh, moon miner to make retirement and yet retirement for him has only been 10 years of work he's only been on the moon 10 years but they started taking a lot out of the body by then well when you consider I mean you consider the money that goes into that I mean we're talking in today's uh, techniques you're talking millions to billions of dollars to get one ship off the ground. And they used to pay welders to go to uh, Saudi Arabia a lot of money. 
yeah. or an engineer is a lot of money to go to Saudi Arabia and so to be like that said that we'd be leaning in the moon. Yeah. That'd but be a good job is, to have. We don't have the ability to get a any kind of infrastructure on the moon now to get that outflow of people going. We've somehow somewhere we've got to get the initial group on the surface. We've got to get a settlement of four or eight people who are doing nothing but they're planting the first farm. They are the first farm that followed Lewis and Clark. It's got to start there, yeah. It's got to start there. If you And that's where I think a lot of the space programs are making the mistake. They're assuming we can deliver an infrastructure right there to the moon, and it's just not going to work. Yeah. That's, about a month ago, it was interesting, I had a chance to talk with a producer from New York, and we got into that a little bit about what what's out there for Hollywood and what's not, and why. And some of the things that came up, uh, one of my screenplays for um, uh, Space for the First Space Hero, um, being a, it would be a great movie, but it would be a big budget movie, and there's very few producers that can get a big budget. So we talked a little bit about that. Uh, we talked about my Fractured Time trilogy, uh, the companies with, uh, you know, obviously there's more than one company when it comes to a, a project. Uh, you're just looking at three or four. But um he has a lot of interest in doing this, and this goes back to what you said beginning to show about where do you start the contacts. Yeah. Um, I found agents, you know, not to be the most effective. Uh, I found I've gotten the most progress out of my, you know, my own efforts, uh, specifically dealing with producers. Uh, over the years, I've been enough to actually meet producers. And we're live again. Uh, this is K1 Radio and Patty Holstrom. We get knocked off uh, a couple times here. But we're back, and, and uh, we're talking about screenplays and how to make that work and with our books. And Michael Ambrosio came upon you know, some good ideas here. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, one of the things I, I was fortunate to talk with this producer about was uh, he liked the idea of not just doing a one-season series, but of uh, doing three, one for each of the books. And he especially liked the idea. It starts off with people like us today. Some things happen, wind up in another world another time. And that's basically the of the first season. The second season, she does a lot where she gets more into all the fantasy, gets into a castle, wizard, dragons, and things like that. So it changes. So it's not the same thing over and over. Then by the time you get to the third uh, season, which is based on the third book, now you're talking about actually going into space. And uh, then the, you know, the next question that came up is, okay, so... So we do three seasons. What's after that? So I was fortunate enough to be able to talk about the second book. Um, the lead character has a son through a shapeshifter. And then the new series, it's like eight years there, The Sun's Adventures. And they like the idea of them maybe going into that, calling that the, a fourth season, uh, you know, maybe coming up with a direct title for the whole thing to keep it going. But the fact that it would always be something new, taking people at different level each time, starting, like, you know, the whole thing starting today with, with people like uh, we know today. So um, they seem really excited about that. But I liked his thought process on that, that now you're not just talking about something like Star Galactic where they're always in space, it's always the same thing, and then you get yeah. into the, the yeah. social issues that are involved with the plane. Um, you know, with, with my stories, things are changing so much, you really never get a, a chance to set, have a set standard. You know, thing, the situations always change, relationships always change, um, people die, other people come. Uh, and, and I think that's real important to... to a media program these days. People are not, they're not comfortable with a show like MASH that had the same characters for seven years. 
uh, yeah, we yeah. all loved uh, Hawkeye, but he couldn't carry the whole program all itself. You had to have that ensemble that goes with mm-hmm. it, and you need to, like a lot of programs today, that ensemble's got to change. Mm-hmm. And the challenges they did. face have to change. They've got to evolve. Yeah. Now you think about that in real terms, in terms if you were part of a group that was going to do a, uh, be a colony in space, it'd be so important to have the right chemistry of people out there. Yes. And the same yeah. thing goes when you're going to That's do, that do a, a TV series or, or you a movie. have a couple of people with the wrong chemistry to throw some <laughs> wrenches in the work. That's yeah. why Survivor went so well. Yeah. You have all that backbite. Yeah, we want to live there. Yeah. Now look at um, Independence Day. <laughs> uh-huh. Independence Day was, was probably one of the more complicated movies ever done. That was a uh, that was actually masterpiece, uh, and actually, unfortunately, I modeled my Space Frontiers after that. And a lot of the feedback I've got is a lot of producers like a small VC type of thing. They don't like too many subplots. They don't right. like things too complicated. Uh-huh. You know, I've gotten a lot of compliments. It was masterfully woven, but no, most producers in the right mind wouldn't touch it. It's too hard. Yeah. You know, right. but that's why I, watching Independence the way they did that. Uh, there were so many different things that went on there, but it was all. It, it all wove together nicely at the end, where you had the things with the president, uh, his wife, wonder, and Will Smith, and the girlfriend. I mean, all those things. And credit uh, Roland Emmerich and Centralista for the job they did with that, and that's kind of been my inspiration because the way they made that movie. If I can write write a script, you know, to to, to follow that mold, that you know, that'd be awesome. Well, a movie has to resolve all of the questions in the course of the two, two and a half hours you've got. A series, you have a much longer period of time to resolve those and bring them to a close. And with the, with the series, there are some things you can leave open-ended. Mm-hmm. Right. You can't do that with a movie. You can't uh, resolve the complete. main issue. Yeah. The main issue that you're taking from all the way through, and the same thing goes with a book series. Somehow, and the hardest thing that, that then comes into play when you're talking a series is the evolution of the characters through that series. If you've got a That's series change. of... 10, 20 episodes in a season, uh, whatever it's gotten to nowadays. Very um, weird seasons now. Yeah, yeah you, you've 12, got but... to get that evolution over those, yeah. as you say, 12 episodes. And that, that can be, I can see that can pulling your hair out trying to get that to work. Yeah. Now you look at some of the series that, that seem to do well for a while out there that fizzled out. Um, for instance, Lost. Uh, like about the loose ends, being able to drag them out over a series. You can't leave the same loose ends out there for a long period of time. People yeah. have a short attention, you know, you have to solve some loose ends and introduce new loose ends. And like a lot of people used to kid with me about that. About at the beginning, the first couple episodes, there were some similarities to to my fracture time. But then again, the one thing I hear about a lot of people say, but yours was like lost with teeth. You know, they said it seemed to have, you know, the one the one thing that lost was missing. And for that, I get a lot of encouragement that hopefully sometime we'll see either a movie or a TV series on it. But then, because you know, once again, going back to the outer space part of it, uh, you know, what happened that we we, we just don't see any space? They've all gone away. Hmm. I thought I was thinking about sliders, for instance, that, that uh, lasts a certain amount of time, and and I would like some kind of uh, story or, or maybe a series kind of like that one. Sliders yeah. was interesting in that you had two layers of challenges that had to be resolved. You had the, the ongoing thing of he's always working on the on the device to try and get them back to their own universe. But then you had the unique constraints that they come into. You know, the one time they come into a place that's totally upside down as regards to society values. Another time they come into a police state. Another time 
to come in too. I think supernatural does the same thing, where you've always got the the fight between you know the good and evil, good and evil, or demons and and yeah. at some point you become the demon. Angels, angels aren't always the good guys either. Yeah, so no, right. But then they also had other other stories in, or you know, uh, other episodes in that series in that season. They actually had nothing to do with that. You had the overarching layer of the series itself, which was the battle between good and evil, and the discoveries that they made along the way. Yeah, what the brothers had had to do with it. Yeah, what they had to do with it. You had the issues of the major characters on that overarching line of the angels. You had God. You had Beelzebub and the others. Then you had the challenge that you faced with each series, which was what is the backstory of the, char- the individuals involved. So you had two layers on that. In the episode, you had the battle between good and evil and what what question were, was going to get resolved in that episode. Then you had the interplay between the two brothers and what were they dealing with. And that was an overlay or a filter of the actual challenge they were actually facing. I believe that what's happened to Supernatural, though, is something that might, that might happen a lot in the series, and that the natural aggression of, of the main one, one brother should have gone darker, and unfortunately everyone loved his, him so much. That's true. They yeah. don't want to see him go down that dark path and never come back. Yeah. But, you know, there's a sample, though, of a series where Every every week, everything changed on them. You had so many different types of creatures. You had the mythical creatures. You had the demons. Then you had the angels or the bad guys. And then it's yeah. you know. And then some of the we were sure which yeah. Some yeah. of the religious uh, things they touched on, like where's God? Nobody knows where he's at. Yeah, he left. And knows where he is. The angels are running the show. The bad angels. And they humanized everything in such a way. And then it got to the point where where the one brother was like. We're you know we're just as bad as the demons killing people you know, because we think who they are and you know yeah, you, you he, almost become he, what you he, he calls them names I mean you know it, as I said he he has a symbol for in order to get rid of the angel um, he says you know they just breathe like flies it's like everything else in this and thinking yeah. world so yeah but there's another case too where you have you know your heroes because they're human they don't have all the super skills they're able to outwit you know, the adversaries with the skills. You know, and well, it's because... And it's, it's that principle of the underdog. The underdog, that yeah. Like. Not yeah. only that, but, but, the, but the, uh, the uh, supernatural character, the, the angels or demons or whatever it happens to be, uh, think themselves so mighty because they have all this power, therefore it's the power that actually ruins them in the long run. So uh, they can't possibly be able to a human would actually be able to be them. Yeah. And you prices them most of the time. <laughs> it's kind of like like chess. You have to understand your your foe mm-hmm. to understand how you know. You, you just can't play the same type of strategy all the time. Different foes, with, you have to know their strategies, what they're like, you know, to be able to counter that. The enemies have to be almost as detailed a structure as does the hero. That's an idea. Yeah. You know, yeah. Uh, great, great enemies give you a great story for your great hero. Well, that's what brings upon us uh, we're talking about uh, not wanting to to hurt your character and not wanting to kill your character. Uh, what happens when you, you know that's the direction you need to go with this character? Does it really hurt? <laughs> it's fun to see how much you can torture your character. Yeah. Because the more they can overcome, the more you feel with them, the stronger your emotion the more respect you have. Also, the, the stronger they become. 
Well, we have to, and, and don't we all have that in life? We have uh, some bad things that happen to us, and we have to overcome them by doing that. And we struggle, and we want to see something. We want to have the hope that we can rise above all that right. and achieve something. So when we see this in a book or in a character uh, in a book or in a, or in a story uh, on the screen, that's what that's what we want. We want to see that rising above that problem. But it has to be believable, and it has to be a, like a real issue. Like uh, like um, you have like MacGyver. He could figure anything out with a bond pin and a rubber band and all. That's cute, but <laughs> he was know. he was almost too good to be true. Yeah, MacGyver. He, he really was. I liked him. He, he, yeah. he was he was fun Andy because guy. he came up with a new solution, but it really wasn't all that believable because he always saved the day. Yeah. Now you look at like burn notice, Michael Weston. Okay, he's yeah. able to figure out a lot of things, but he takes. He his I love that story yeah. too. He, he, gets gets he goes he through a lot burned. of painful experiences. Friends getting yeah. hurt. Um, so just lost Fiona. Yeah, and that's that you prison. feel for. I mean, it, it, you have to you have to have your characters be able to reach out and make people yeah. care about them, yeah. whether they care about them in a good way or a bad way. And but, man, when, when we saw that ending, and sure we saw the ending where yeah, he sees the, her, he I sees her go up the stairs of the federal building. Yeah. He's giving herself in, and then you're, oh man, he didn't get there in time. But there's yeah. nothing that he could really do because he she really needed she she had to do this. She wanted to save. Him. Yeah, it was yeah. the whole I want to save each other kind of syndrome. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Any, anybody you want, that you uh, killed off or were afraid that you had to kill off? Uh, I can't give anything off the top of my head. Um, anybody oh, well, well, anybody yeah. you wanted to kill off? Actually, you know, <laughs> I think a couple. Yeah. In Moonstone, I killed off the father. The uh, uh, the ranger. The, the, the boy grows and develops, becomes the leader of the rangers, and then in the process, he becomes the instrument to destroy. It's very much like Darth Vader. Uh-huh. Son comes back to destroy the enemy, which ends up being the father. Wow. And, uh, yeah. And it's, it's it's a challenging thing. Well, you know, I like twisting things, so I happen to love uh, time travel, and we've got only 10 minutes to give this. But uh, time travel is a subject, and uh, that's an infinite possibility. Don't you think that's a cool idea, Michael? Yeah. In um, Fractured Time, one of the things I did with that, I tried to make it believable in that time travel maybe isn't as obvious as we think it is. Um, Where I had technology that that starts the whole problem in Fractured Time, it's actually for, for travel for space travel, not for time travel. And it's misused that that you can travel through time, but then you have all the problems that come with it. So uh, that's one of the things that comes up when uh, the character, when he finds out what the cause of you were that, that the device that that causes all this wasn't for time travel. It was for space, just traveling from point A to point B. And, you know, the people that got it, misused it, that's what caused all these events, you know, things, yeah. you know, cataclysmic type events, and also, um, you know, it, it's it's like say it, it's good for thought because it makes you wonder, could we ever do time travel? I mean, there's got to be a plane out there, you know, you know, a level where, you know, physics can make that work. But will we ever see it? You know, I I don't know. So what I did is I, I have a couple different uh, ways in which they did time travel. One's uh, accidental. Uh, you know, it's a phenomenon that they happen to, to go through a time rift and, and, and the helicopters go 
go through the time reg and, and they, you know, all three of them, and they lose one helicopter down uh, through the time reg. Uh, then, it's a, you know, study that uh, the nodes on Earth and how that works, and so use that. And then I've got uh, the development of Tama, who's able to, she will be able to, and you see her progression in the series, <clears throat> being able to spend time and being able to go through, you know, different time, uh, being able to focus on, on that time and be able to go through uh, into that time. So that's an interesting idea. Somebody else is on. Yeah. So um, we, we've got the last few minutes, so let's wrap it up then, guys. This is, I know time travel is one of those subjects. I could consider talk about that all night long because, you know what, time is long. Mm-hmm. Yeah, think about that movie Time Cop. <laughs> kind of gives you an idea of the parameters of, of That's time a travel. movie that we probably could have, you know, <laughs> ended after an hour. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's, a, that's a good example of why we're better off without it. <laughs> why we're, some, yeah. Some yeah. of the problems that could come yeah. up. Anything that a human can conceive, a human will corrupt. Oh, that yeah. That's true. Yeah. yeah, that's uh, for sure. <laughs> we just love dinking around with stuff. That's a handy man in it all. Yeah. Oh, God, I'm going to go take my sense. That way we can uh, close up. We're here at uh, Mom and Dallas, and, and, and they close for six, so we're going to go ahead and close up for the night, too. And we want to thank Michael and Brochure from Philadelphia to be with us this weekend. Uh, for those of you who don't know, we're going to be able to see him. Uh, if you're in town, you can see him tomorrow at the book rack. And at the moment, I just I for, totally forgot where it is. Mesa. Well, it's East Mesa. East Mesa on the Sossman, I think. Sossman and... Signal Butte. Where? What's the Signal Butte? Signal Butte, yeah. There you go. It always an S word. Yeah. <laughs> Signal Butte and uh, yeah. way out there. So you can take a look at that online. Uh, the bookrack.com has, uh, has a location. Yeah, the address I have it listed on my website as well at fracturedtime.com. So anybody wants to see where I'm going to be, where I'm coming from, there it is. Yeah, there you are. And as as Buck Rubans, I said, where have you been? There you are. <laughs> and with that, I guess, uh, and, and of course, Don. I always thank Don for being around. He's a handy guy. So uh, with that, we're going to say this is KWAD Radio, and this is Patty Holstrand signing out. Uh, we have another show on KWAD Radio uh, next Monday. So take a look at uh, KWAD Radio on on Blog Talk and find out what my schedule is. And if you guys, anybody else wants to actually be a, one of my guests, please you know drop me a line on KWAD Radio on the blog talk and uh, let me know about your book and whether or not it would fit into especially I especially for anything science fiction, fantasy or horror oriented. So with that, say good night and have a great weekend.